0: This evening, Hebrews 10, with that much of it which we will cover, we shall see. Let's begin with prayer. You are high and lifted up, O Lord. High and lifted up and thrice holy. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. You are infinitely and eternally set apart from all sin because holiness is your character. You are in and of yourself. Holy and perfectly sanctified. What is our heart but unholy in your sight? What is our mind but unholy in your sight? What are our bodies but unholy in your sight? Because of our own sin, because we are not holy as you are. But your spirit, the spirit of holiness, has graciously condescended to draw us into your own holy character. Now, O Lord, how are we without excuse, we who have been graciously indwelt by the Spirit of holiness, imprinted, indeed united, to Him who is holy above all? your dear Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, thrice Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do illuminate our unholy minds by your eternal holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the structure of this tenth chapter <clears throat> is not consistent. <clears throat> in fact, there is no one uniform paradigm that integrates the whole of these 39 verses. <clears throat> there are, however, several bracketing patterns, which we want to note. But as is our want, let's begin with the beginning and end of the chapter and look for any telltale duplications. So as you gaze at the end of chapter nine and examine verse one of chapter 10, do you notice anything that is duplicated? And if so, what would we label that? What type of a literary device would we call that? Ben? Yes, the word offer in verse 28 of chapter 9 and offered. In verse 1 of chapter 10, they are the same (coughs) Greek root. And what do we call that literary device? Marge, what do we call that? Le mot crochet, or in English? A hook word. This is a hook pattern. All right, consistent (coughs) with the way our author has been uh, (coughs) constructing his chapters from uh, chapter 7 on. We have the same thing continuing, chapter 10 woven in to the unfolding <coughs> drama of his epistle at the end of chapter 9. All right, now let's glance down at the end of chapter 10. And let's also look for a duplication <coughs> that may be parallel <coughs> between verse 39 of chapter 10 and verse 1 of chapter 11. Frank, do you see a word that is repeated in those two verses? Christina, do you see it? Um, I see faith. It's the word faith. Correct. In verse 39, we see the word faith. And then, of course, in chapter 11, verse 1, he begins with his, shall we call, roll call of the faithful so that the word faith is duplicated. And we once again have this hook pattern, a literary device in which he ties chapter 10 into chapter 11. All right. So the beginning and ending of the chapter uh, Demonstrate a uh, literary paradigm of integrity or ongoing uh, dramatic uh, development. Let's uh, now look again back at verse 1 of chapter 10 and let's compare that verse with verse 14. Let's see if we can identify a duplicate word in those two verses. 10.1 and 10.14. Marge? The word perfected, that is correct. So we do have what we might call a small bracket here within this large chapter. We have a bracket which folds the word perfected at the beginning of the chapter and at verse 14. Now, we also have another small bracket, which begins at verse 10 and also is found in verse 14, a different word than perfected. And as you look at those two verses, 10, 10 and 10, 14, what word do you see repeated there? Sacrifice. Not sacrifice. Sacrifice. Did you say? I said sacrifice. You said sacrifice. Marge? Sanctified. 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 Now, that word, sanctified, in 10 and 14, is also found in verse 29. So I want you to jump on down there for a moment. And notice that the word sanctified occurs in verse 29. And... Who is it that was sanctified in verse twenty-nine? Who is the he? The one who's trampled on the foot of the, the on the foot of the Son of No, no. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Who is the one who has provided the blood of the covenant? Christ. It's Christ himself. All right. So Christ is sanctified. And we want to come back to that a little later on. But you'll notice that we have another uh <clears throat> Duplication, Let's actually we have a rule of three here, threes, the word sanctified used three times in this chapter, 10, 14, and 29. Now in verse 18 we have a phrase that you also find duplicated in verse 26. See the phrase? The phrase, no longer for sin, is duplicated in 18 and 26. It doesn't create a bracketing pattern because there is a bracket which begins at verse 19 and extends to verse 35. Alright, so we're now looking at verse 19, comparing it with verse 35, and we're looking for a word that is duplicated in both of those verses. Did I hear it? The word confidence, that is correct. Now, this is the second <clears throat> fairly large bracket in this chapter. So we've noted the bracket between verses 1 and 14 of the word perfected. And now <clears throat> we have a, a larger bracket between 19 and 35 duplicating the word confidence. <clears throat> but we also have uh, a couple of other Interesting devices in this chapter that occur in verse 27, 30 and 31 in the first instance, and then in verses 38 and 39 in the second instance. <clears throat> so looking at verse 27 and getting a sense of uh, the words that are there, And then looking at verse 30 and 31 and the words that are given there. You'll notice in the outline that there are two words in question. In verse 27. And those two words will reappear in verses 30 and 31. All right, do you see the word judgment in verse 27? That would be the second word on your outline at verse 27. There's another word that precedes it that we want to note. But in verse 30, you also see the word judge. Those two words in Greek are semantically related. And so... Uh, we would have judgment in the second blank line in verse 27, and in verse 30, judgment or judge repeated. But what's this first word in verse 27? It's the word terrifying, which also reappears in verse 31. Sometimes translated the word fear. Now notice the sequence. He begins with the word terrifying in verse 27. He follows it with the word judgment. And then in verse 30, he uses the word judge. And in verse 31, he concludes with the word, the word terrify. This is a chiasm. It's a chiastic reversal. So we have him using a chiastic device in this section of this part of his letter. He's going to do the very same thing again in verses 38 and 39. So let's jump down to those two passages and let's take a look at those verses for words which are similar. Now, actually, we've identified one of those words already, as we've noted the hook pattern in 39 and 11.1. In verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. Faith occurs in 38 as it does in 39. But the next phrase in the second part of verse 38 is the phrase shrinks back. So in verse 38, we have the sequence faith And then the phrase shrinks back. But notice verse 39. The first phrase in verse 39 is shrink back. And the second word in verse 39 that is the same as 38 is faith. We once again have this chiastic pattern at the end of this chapter, even as we found the chiastic pattern in 27, 30, and 31. Now, that leaves one small bracket. It's on the left-hand side, right-hand side, I'm sorry, of your outline, verses 32 and 36, a word that occurs in both of those verses and, in fact, a word which forms another small bracketing pattern in this chapter. Do you notice the word? Can you pick it out? It is the word endured in 32 and endurance in 36. Once again, semantic cognates. So, as you go from top to bottom on your outline, you should have at 928 offer, at 101 offered, and then also at 101 perfected. At 1010, sanctified. At 1014, perfected, and then sanctified. In verse 18, no longer for sin. Verse 19, confidence. Verse 26, no longer for sin. Verse 27, terrifying, followed by judgment. Verse 29, sanctified again. Verse 30, judgment. Verse 31, terrifying again. Verse 32, endured. Verse 35, confidence verse 36, endurance, verse 38, faith, the first word, and then the phrase shrinks back, verse 39, shrinks back, and then the word faith, and in 11.1, one, faith once again. Now I repeat, uh, there is no consistent or uniform macro structure to this chapter There are several smaller bracketing units to this chapter. The most significant are the bracket between 1 and 14, which is uh, discussing uh, perfected or perfection, and the bracket between 19 and 35, which is considering confidence. All right, now looking at the first verse, we have this phrase, good things to come, what kind of language is this? Good things to come. Art is nodding his head head. Is that a nod of all knowing Art? No. Uh, uh, eschatological. It is eschatological language. You did have the nod of all na- knowing. Excellent. This is eschatological language, and we can confirm this from within the letter we turn back to chapter 2, and notice verse 5, Hebrews 2, verse 5, For he, that is God, did not subject to angels the world to come. Now the world to come is, of course, the eschatological world. This is also found in Hebrews 13, verse 14. This phrase, coming world, even as it occurs, this things, things to come here. In chapter 13, verse 14, we read, we have not a lasting city here, but we are seeking a city which is to come. Eschatological language, that which is coming. Coming in what tense? What time? End times times or the future. All right. So the future is this world to come or the city which is to come or the things which uh, the good things to come here in verse one of chapter 10. But what about chapter 12, verse 22? Frank, do you have that? Would you read it for us? But you have come to Mount Sinai, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels. Thank you. Just that verse. Thanks very much. Uh, notice the tense. <clears throat> you have come. It's not a future tense, is it? What kind of a tense is it? It is a present perfect tense. Not a past perfect. It is a present perfect tense. So it is saying that you have presently come to the heavenly Jerusalem. And yet here we have suggested that the language in 10.1 is future language. Did we not notice this same issue when we looked at the first verse of this epistle In which God spoke in time past, but in these last days, these eschatological days has spoken to us in Jesus Christ as if the eschatological days are not future only, they are also, Frank? Present. Exactly. So here we have this dynamic of New Testament eschatology which we find in the Synoptic Gospels with the teaching of Jesus. We also find it in the book of Acts, the preaching of the Apostle. We find it in Paul's epistles. We find it here in the epistle to the Hebrews. We find it in John's epistles. We find it throughout the whole New Testament, a present and future eschatological aspect. So what was future to the Old Testament is present to the New Testament. Now, of course, that would be true in terms of thinking of the linear shadow to reality uh, paradigm that he is uh, uh, suggesting in verse 1. That is, the shadow of the good things to come were shadowed upon the Old Testament believers. In other words, what was shadowed to them... Future to them is present to us. But the future to us, namely that heaven, heavenly and eternal reality, is present to all. It is present to us because we have come already to the heavenly Jerusalem. And it was present to Old Testament believers in measure through a glass darkly as they looked in anticipation to that which had been promised to them out of God's own abundance and dwelling place. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right, this participation then which we're examining here, this participation in the heavenly Jerusalem, which is a present reality to New Testament believers, is also an anticipated reality to Old Testament believers through the shadows and types that were displayed to them. We may say that what was shadowed to the Old Testament, drew them into the possession through a glass, darkly, sub-eschatologically. Now, we don't mean that they were underneath the eschatological. We mean that in relationship to the uh, future semi and consummate eschatological age, that they were less uh, f- uh, full in the expression and experience of that reality, but nonetheless, they still had it. And we will make a detailed analysis of how they had it when we begin to examine the 11th chapter of this letter. So I'm using that language sub-eschatological to refer to the Old Testament eschatological participation, possession, and experience. They did enjoy the blessings of heaven, We can see that in the fact that they were saved by grace through faith. Grace is an eschatological gift. It is a gift that comes down from heaven. And if they were saved by grace, they received that eschatological blessing. But sub-eschatologically in comparison with the New Testament era and in comparison with the eternal eschaton, the absolute consummate eschatological era. Well, what is realized in the coming of Christ and in the New Testament age draws us into possession, though through a glass darkly, semi-eschatologically. We are in the, shall we say, fulfillment of those shadows and types, and we enjoy them, though we do not enjoy them in their fullest display or experience, namely face-to-face eschatological glory in the consummate kingdom of heaven. And so that's why we use this term semi-eschatological, because it is, and this age is an advance beyond the Old Testament era, but still it is possession of the same eschatological grace that unites us to them though we enjoy a fullness of that grace that they only yearned and longed for. Still, we have not enjoyed the consummate perfection of that grace. And so there is yet one more future aspect to this eschatological drama, and that is the consummate eschatological relationship. The face-to-face, eternal, and never-ending blessedness of those who enjoy the grace of God. And an experience of joy and delight, which will belong to the Old Testament, uh, sinners saved by grace, New Testament sinners saved by grace, and all sinners saved by grace in glory will continue to experience that eschatological gracious reality. All right, so this is a way of describing this relationship between present and future in the sense that we enjoy in the present a measure, or shall we say in Paul's language, a down payment of that which will come in the future. The future has moved into the present because of Christ's finished work. And yet there is still an enjoyment that lies beyond. And that is the enjoyment of perfect consummate, eternal, face-to-face delight in the Lord and in the communion of the saints and in the myriads of angels in the General Assembly of the Firstborn of the Most High. All right, do you have any questions about that? On your outline, uh, future, in parenthesis, Old Testament, or OT, is present, and then the parenthesis, new TNT, that's how you would fill out that line, And then in the next line, future, heavenly or eternal, is present to all believers, Old Testament and New Testament alike. When we talk about participation, we're talking about the experience, the possession of it, the fact that it comes, and it always comes by grace, it always comes by God's initiative. Whether in that sub-eschatological experience, semi escatological experience, which is our experience of it, or the consummate eschatological experience, which is the experience of it for those spirits of just men and women and children made perfect, as this epistle will also point out later on. Well, the good things to come are the good things that have come. You see, the present and the future interface here. This is the wonderful uh, drama and the glorious mystery of the eschatology of the New Testament. These two overlap. And in overlapping and interfacing, they give us a participation in the present of the future. Though they don't give it to us consummately yet. There is a not yet future to the present now. But that is the way we outline this <clears throat> eschatological paradigm uh, in the New Testament, and we do not want to forget our Old Testament brothers and sisters, because they too enter into the mystery of that, because they have the grace of God, as we shall see clearly in chapter 11 of this letter. Now let's remind ourselves. Of what these good things to come are. First of all, the source of these good things to come. Where do these good things to come come from? Frank? The Father. From the Father? Is he talking about the Father here? In chapter 10? He's talking about? Christ. Christ. And what did Christ do that he's talking about? Well, he was a shadow of the reality of, of what God did. What event is he talking about? About Christ's life? Well, the perfection that. Oh, on the cross that 's what we were looking for, his death on the cross, his sacrifice on the cross is offering himself as the fulfillment of these shadows in his death on the cross, and so <clears throat> these good things to come have come to us through christ, through christ 's death on the cross, through the sacrifice of himself as the once and for all eschatological sacrifice, the once and for all eschatological lamb of God, the once and for all eschatological offering for sin. There are no more offerings, no more sacrifices, no more lambs after him. All right. Now, that obviously benefits us by admitting us to this eschatological world. That is, it admits us to the world to come. Chapter two, verse five. It admits us to the city to come, chapter 13 verse 14. And at the center of that eschatological world, at the focal center of that eschatological world to which we have been admitted is our life hidden with Christ in God. Christ is the center of that eschatological arena, of that eschatological world. The center of the good things to come is Christ himself. Now, presently in your life, Christ is the center of your life because your life is hidden with Christ in God and where is Christ in God? He is in heaven and your life is centered in Christ, in God, in heaven. That's where your focus is. Even now as you live and walk, Now and not yet, for it will be if you are presently focused upon Christ because of the blood of this Lamb who washed away your sin, you are now beginning what you will enjoy forever. You will never have your eyes off a central focus of Christ in glory, for you will be saying with all the angels and the saints, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Your whole attention will be centered upon the center of your redemption, who is your glorified, sacrificed, risen, ascended, and seated Savior. That is the way you are called to live now, as well as not yet, for your life. Colossians 3. Your life has been hidden, has been hidden with Christ in God, in glory. writer of the Hebrews, in his own way, is saying the same thing. The center of focus of the good things to come is this one who is himself the reality of all those types, the anti-type of all those shadows. He is your life now, as well as not yet. Now, the second thing that we notice from this first verse is that one of the good things to come is the experience, the actual sense, the actual feeling of drawing near. Drawing near. Your soul being drawn near. You feeling, sensing, understanding, being drawn near unto God. How? How are you drawn near unto God? Verse 16. Verse 16. You are drawn near through the new heart that has been given to you when he took away your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. And doesn't a heart of flesh throb and beat and pulsate? Doesn't a heart pulsate with passion? Does your heart not beat and throb and pulsate with the experience of, of drawing near unto your Savior. You see, one of the good things to come is you coming with a new heart, pulsating and beating and throbbing with love and affection and desire for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a heart does and the new heart that has been put put into you by that heavenly grace is reciprocally drawing you near unto heaven and your Savior and the God who has given you that wonderful gift well another benefit of these good things to come, is that there are now no more blood sacrifices as an offering for sin. No more need to bring bulls and goats or lambs or chickens or any other thing and shed its blood. Blood offering has been completed and we are not encumbered with coming into God's presence, with bulls and with animals on a string and with all the mess that goes along with killing and shedding blood and cutting up pieces of animals and putting them on the altar and so on and so forth. And the stench of all of it. No. No more bondage to that. And finally, you also notice that there is no more consciousness of sin. No more consciousness of sin in verse 2. No more awareness of personal sin. Is that what he's talking about, Marge? No more awareness of personal sin? No more consciousness of sin? Marge is testifying that she still has this awareness of personal sin. How about you, Ben? Yes, yes. How about you, Robert? Yes, is anybody here that is exempt from ongoing consciousness of personal sin? Uh, nobody's raising their hand, you don't have to be shy. I mean, if, if you've gotten over that hump, we'd like to know about it. Well, then what's he talking about here? <laughs> no, No more awareness, no longer have consciousness of sin. We are conscious of sin. <clears throat> We're conscious of sin every day. We're conscious of the fact that we still have indwelling sin in us apostle paul says put to death the old man mortify that on put it to death we're in the process of continually putting it to death it keeps raising its ugly head and we have to put it to death again slap it down again not by our own strength by the grace of god dwelling within us <clears throat> but here we are befuddled we're a little bit confused here what is he describing Okay. Um, tell me more. What, what what are you what are you? Uh, I'm 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 giving you an A, not an A plus. I'm giving you an A, uh, Ben. Uh, so what? what one thing to be conscious of sin, and it's another one to have those sin still be your responsibility. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So <clears throat> the issue here is the resolution of sin's consequences and he has taken away the consequences and resolved those sins so that now we have no consciousness of sin in that respect he is not suggesting that we have become sinless no we want to talk about that later on as well But here, you see, in relationship to this consciousness that the Old Testament believer had in the continual and repetitive, sacrificing year by year and continually, even day by day, there was no end to it. There was no resolution of it. Yes, there was resolution of it in the sense that as it anticipated its fulfillment, then it could be regarded as a closed book. But yet, every year he was reminded the book really wasn't closed yet because something hadn't occurred in history that would make that dramatic closure evident. The time when no more... Lambs and bulls and goats were brought before God for sacrifice hadn't come yet. So all that Old Testament believer could reach out was in the consciousness of his sin continually being unresolved. That is no final resolution. I'm always looking forward to final resolution. I'm always looking into the future for something to deal with this once and for all. And the once and for all hasn't come yet. And so I'm still conscious of the fact that my sins haven't been completely canceled and annulled. In terms of the historical outworking of that program for dealing with sin and under the old covenant. No, I'm not suggesting here that there wasn't any full and final forgiveness of sins for Old Testament believers at the moment when they believed. That's not what I am suggesting. I'm talking about this historical outworking, which is what the writer is describing notice, he's describing this historical paradigm where we're moving from shadow to reality, from the uh, offering of sacrifices to the time when no sacrifices is going to be made, when those old sacrifices are enforcing this consciousness of sin, and now there is no longer this consciousness of sin because of what has occurred in the sacrificial death of Christ. Not talking about us being aware of our internal sinfulness day by day. That's not what he's talking about. Now let's underscore that by two phrases. Ben echoed them a little bit ago. If we look up to verse 26 of verse, of chapter nine, Christ has been manifested to put away sin. By the sacrifice of himself. That's what that Old Testament consciousness of sin was anticipating. But he has done it. And therefore there is no longer any consciousness of sin in that respect. Now our writer duplicates that phrase. Notice verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And yet what has Christ done? He has taken them away. The good things to come have taken away that sin. Notice in verse 1. The law could never by these sacrifices perfect those who draw near. The blood of bulls and goats could not. It was impossible for them to take away sin. Here is this. Double bracketing negative verses one and four are connected with these two negative categories, but Jesus has taken it away. Chapter nine, verse twenty-six. So here he is following, and in fact his hook pattern between nine twenty-eight and ten one is relating is shall we say developing this motif of how Jesus has taken away what could not be taken away in verse one and verse four. But what about the law here? Verse 1, the law. You're talking about the Ten Commandments, Ben? Ceremonial law. law. How do you know? You are right. I give you an A plus. Because in the context, that's what, what context? Show me in the context. I want a proof text. I don't want context. In this, in this case, I like context, but in this case, I'm forcing you to find the proof text. This is not the moral law. This is not the law of the Decalogue. It's not the Ten Commandments. And how do we know? Ben is right. The context is talking about ceremonial law. I agree with that. But I want you to... Art, you had your head up. You now your hands up. Shadow of the good things that are coming and then it says for this reason so it's following on the same line it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly okay you're in the same boat as ben here with contextual and i like that but you see i want something stronger ben Verse verse eight that's exactly right notice verse eight Burnt offerings and sacrifices thou hast not desired, which are offered according to the law. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the law of burnt offering and sacrifices. That's your verse that tells you he's not describing civil law. He's not describing moral law. He's not talking about the whole Mosaic law. He's talking specifically about sacrificial and ceremonial law. That's what's at issue here. We're not going to, therefore, extrapolate from this word law here and say that something has happened to the whole law of God, including the moral law under the Old Covenant. Are we? I hope we're not, because we're going to read what the proof text as well as the context says. And we're not going to expand beyond that because that's not what he's doing. This is very important. Because of the insidious error of antinomianism, which reads law in the New Testament in any antithetical sense to mean the whole legal administration of the Mosaic era, including the moral code. And so the antinomian sets, sets aside on the basis of misreading passage like this, the law of the Ten Commandments and says that the believer is no longer under obligation to keep the Ten Commandments. Not talking about Ten Commandments here. You cannot extrapolate from the use of the word law here to the moral code of Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. Cannot do it. Because then you would be repudiating the eschatological character of God. Remember, the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the eschatological moral character of God. You'd have to abolish the moral character of God to abolish the Ten Commandments. Jesus makes that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the character of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Moses has been given on Mount Sinai in those ten precepts. The law is eschatological. The moral law is eschatological. It's a reflection of the heavenly moral character of God. Are you going to have any other gods before you in heaven? Thou shalt have no other gods before me is heavenly law. It is heavenly moral character. That's the way you're going to behave in heaven. Are you going to murder people in heaven? Thou shalt not kill. You're not going to murder anybody in heaven. That's heavenly law. You see, it's eschatological law. That's what Jesus is saying in the Ten Commandments, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. That's the reason he goes over the law in terms of, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is a place where you don't bow down to image. You don't curse God's name. You don't take his name in vain. You keep the Sabbath day holy, perfectly holy, have an everlasting Sabbath. You honor all those in authority. You honor God. You honor all anybody that's above you in terms of authority. You don't kill. You don't commit adultery. You couldn't even imagine adultery in heaven. Could you? Really? Huh? Impossible. Couldn't steal. You couldn't take anything from your neighbor in heaven. Let alone bear false witness. Let alone be greedy and covetous and so on and so forth and slovenly and dirty and marching around streets and demanding that you don't have to work for your living and you should be paid for and everything you do, should, everything you get should be paid for. and After all, you should have a free lunch, right? Isn't that what America is all about? Deliver me. All right, <clears throat> so we come to this word perfected. Make perfect. And now we have to grapple with what our writer is trying to say as he brackets this section between verse 1 and verse 14. The first problem is in verse 2, where he uses the word once. And it's the same Greek word that he has used for the once for all sacrifice of Christ. In fact, in verse 10, he will use a variation of that Greek word. In verse 1, or in verse 2, rather, it's hopox. In verse 10, it is ephopox. They are synonyms. Now, we have indicated over and over again that when he uses this word about the sacrifice of Christ and so on, that he is talking about an eschatological once and for all, finality. Is that what he's talking about in verse 2? He's using the very same Greek word. Worshippers, what worshippers? What worshippers is he talking about? God, in verse 2. That they are not saying that they're not perfected? Who, who are they? Old Testament. They are Old Testament worshipers. Okay? Now, they have once been cleansed. And yet, he goes on to say that they go over and over again, having these sacrifices year by year continually. What does he mean by once been cleansed? Is it once and for all? In other words, is it hopox? He uses hotbox here. Is it hopox in the sense that finality has occurred in their cleansing? No, that's not what he means. So why is he using this word to confuse us? Hypothetical. hypothetical. Oh, <clears throat> he's an Amaraldian. This is kind of hypothetical theology. Well, what no, I'm, I'm teasing you a little bit there, Ben. Uh, <clears throat> it, 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 he's not talking about hypothetical, though. He says that they have once been cleansed. They have been cleansed once. One time. In what context? Now I want the context. Repetition. Once but not completed, it's done and it's over. No. No. It's not unrelated, but here he's referring to when the priest would pronounce you clean. Once he pronounced you clean, you were clean from that incident. For instance, if you presented yourself to the priest because you had leprosy and the leprosy disappeared, the priest would pronounce you clean and you were clean. You now were readmitted to the tabernacle or to the temple. When you touched a dead body, you appeared to the priest. And when you went through the ritual cleansing, he pronounced you clean and you are clean from that incident. When you have a baby, go through cleanliness after child's birth. You present yourself to the priest and the priest pronounces you clean. You have to go through a certain period of time of purification. But nonetheless, he he pronounces you priest clean. So once and for all, that event is behind you. You're clean from it. That's how he's using the term once here. But he's not referring to the perfection of the consciousness or the perfection of the sacrificial system. He's only noting that even in that system, once an event could be put behind you, but it would not deal with the consciousness of sin that was before you year after year when you came to the tabernacle or the temple on the Day of Atonement or when you brought your own burnt offering week after week or even day after day or whatever, and you had that presented. All right, so this is the Levitical pronouncement of once being cleansed. It's not referring to an eschatological pronouncement. And so here he's using apox, he's using the word with a different contextual sense. The context will determine how we understand his use of the word. Yes, Scott. I was wondering if you could read the NIV aloud to us, because the NIV actually makes it sound like an eschatological, it's not a thing. For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt. sin No, it's too strong. Okay, here's the NASB. Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. Having once been cleansed. On one occasion, been cleansed. Referring to that Levitical pattern. <clears throat> you know, there's a the whole legislation for what you do if you're unclean in, in, in the, book of Levit- <clears throat> the book of Leviticus, actually duplicated in Deuteronomy as well. So how you present yourself to the priest. Remember, Jesus, when he cured the leper, he said, go present your, to the, yourself to the priest. Go do <clears throat> what the law of Moses prescribed that you do. So <clears throat> he had made him whole, but he wanted him to experience the being pronounced clean from the leprosy, which was, of course, the custom of the law. Jesus wasn't setting that aside until he rose from the dead. Then lepers don't need to go to the priest anymore. Go ahead, Ben. The well, way I read it is, to me, is he is making the point that the Old Testament system, but this particular system did not work for, for the perfecting of the, of the worship for these very reasons. That if it had worked properly, then they would not have to do it again. They would not have to be Continues year after year, but the very fact that there is not. Yes, so that is correct. I mean, Ben's making a good point. This context has this continual year by year paradigm in the background. So that would even apply to childbirth. You know, in, in, in successive occurrences, you still have to go through the cleansing ritual. But still, that one event is behind you. So that's what he means by once. You're not talking about its once and for all finality in terms of you're never going to have to do it again. And and Ben's point point of of underscoring this year by year or this language of of continually doing it is is accurate. It it keeps it before the Old Testament worshiper is still no end to it, no final end to it. Now, in verse three, the phrase year by year would remind us of what? Something we've already talked about. Frank, did that ring a bell? Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. What annual year by year is he talking about? Um, When they went and um, offered uh, at the once a year.
1: What day was that? Day of Atonement. Day
0: of Atonement. In Hebrew? They celebrated it last Friday and Saturday? Uh, Yom Kippur. Kippur. (coughs) Correct. All right. So he's referring to Yom Kippur. Now, in verse 3, he also says, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin once a year. What about us? Verse 17. What about us? Well, it is a reminder of the Lord's Supper. It seems to me. What's going on in verse 17? Our sins against us. Yeah. He will never remember our sins. Year by year, there's a reminder of their sins. But God says under the new covenant, I will remember your sins no more. Yes, the Lord's Supper is a testimony to that. <clears throat> but he's referring to the <clears throat> new covenant itself, that this age in which we live <clears throat> is so contrastively different because we don't have this year by year remembrance God says, as far as the east is from the west, I remember them no more. I blot them out. I remove them from you. All right, now, <clears throat> we've already talked about that language of take away sins. We mentioned that earlier. This, once again, is eschatological language. To take away sin is to remove something that stands against you, even into the eternal assize, the eternal judgment seat of God. So it is impossible for them to take away sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because bulls and goats are non-eschatological. They can only point to the eschatological. Notice verse 1, the shadow. They cannot be the once for all sacrifice, verse 2. Because of no finality in that one. Why? It takes an eternal person to offer in an eternal arena for an eternal offense. And no bull and goat can, is capable of. Of performing that eternal function. It is impossible. You put your confidence in the blood of bulls and goats. It is an impossibility. It is a shaking reed. It is a council of despair. Make, uh, like survivor, uh, for sin. Ergo, the incarnation of the Word. Thank you, Athanasius. In other words, we must have an incarnation of God in order to placate God in the nature which offended. But only God in that nature can placate that offense. All right, we'll break here at verse 5, and stretch your legs, and we'll come back to look at Psalm 40. Now, verse 5, and this question about Psalm 40, Who is he who comes? And when he comes into the world, what's it referring to? Incarnation. The incarnation. Once again, Athanasius day, Incarnation Verbi, the incarnation of the Word. Alright, what's the Psalm talking about? Psalm's talking about the incarnation of Christ. When he comes into the world, he says. Who wrote the 40th Psalm? David. David. But he says. And he just said. He who comes is saying. Christ is saying. What's Psalm 40 doing then? Oh, I read the Psalms because of devotional poetry. I just like to meditate on these poems in the Bible. Isn't it wonderful? (laughs) Psalm 40 isn't devotional poetry, is it? It's It's, It's a messianic psalm. It's... It's prophecy. It's prophecy. Yes, he is speaking through the psalm. Christ is speaking through David. This is prophetic. Yes, it is messianic, but it is prophetic messianism. And so now we've got to grapple with why the writer uses this. What is the writer of Hebrews doing with the language of this psalm? the question is at what point do we shift at what point do we make a transition from ineffectual Old Testament sacrifices and effectual New Testament sacrifice from continual year-by-year day-by-day sacrifices to a once and for all final eschatological sacrifice at what point do we shift At what point do we make a transition? And the answer, of course, is at the point of the incarnation. At the advent of the Son of God come in the flesh. At the point when his enfleshed life, death, resurrection, and ascension appears in history. That's at the, that's the point at which we make the shift. Alright, well, and David is prophesying the advent and incarnation of Christ. Though, we may say as an aside, as 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 suggests, he may not understand the full prophetic implication of his prediction. Seeking the Spirit of God that was within them. He doesn't completely understand it. But this he does understand. Now, this is extremely important. Notice, David says, as Voss points out, that by his internal obedience he will accomplish what external animal sacrifices and offerings cannot accomplish. David is saying that he will accomplish by his internal obedience. What external animal sacrifices and offerings cannot accomplish? His internal obedience? Mm. Notice that even this Old Testament figure, this figure of David, understands that bull and goat blood is unable to take away sin. David knows that he gets it well then if this blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin and David knows it Psalm 40 then what is it that takes away sin it is the internal conformity of the will to delight and take pleasure In what God delights and takes pleasure, that is pleasing to Almighty God. It is the inner consciousness of the will. True sacrifice lies then in the inner heart of obedience. Not the outward sacrifice of bulls and goats. Would David do that? No. It's impossible for him to do it. But Christ's vicarious sacrifice is just such a sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice is a sacrifice of a body whose will is internally devoted to pleasing, obeying, and delighting in God. Even David in Psalm 40 is conscious of the transition, the shift in what type of sacrifice is pleasing to God, his own willing and obedient heart, not outward sacrifices and offerings. David is then prophetically identified with the life of Christ, Here is this gracious eschatological drama occurring even in that sub-eschatological era where David is drawn into this drama. He is drawn into the life of Christ. He is united to that once and for all vicarious sacrifice To his own realization that animal sacrifices are inadequate. What God delights in, and David gets it, what God delights in is a body whose will is obedient to his will. And so in Psalm 40, in confessing this, David participates in the blessing of that substitute body and will even from afar. He understands the point of transition He enters into the point of transition. He confesses the point of transition. He possesses the point of transition, even afar off. Because the blood of bulls and goats doesn't cut it. And he knows it. So, one final observation on the use of this passage. Christ's willing obedience is that of one who has the will of God written on his heart he is the eschatological heart written body and so in incarnating that obedience verse 16 in Christ that obedience is written on the heart of David and the heart of believers in all ages. Because David is in Christ. And every newly written heart united to the heart of Christ newly written is also in his final sacrifice. Look at the wonder. Look at the wonder of what this psalm is telling you. What the writer is telling you this psalm is telling you. What this writer is telling you that David is telling you. That he is holding on to the internal heart and will of Christ. A thousand years before he is incarnated and in so doing, participates in the shift of the end of the age, even long before that age dawns. This is Christocentric exegesis, but it is also Christocentric incarnational exegesis, because Christ incarnates himself in the psalmist's language, in the psalmist's hopes, In the psalmist's faith, he incarnates himself in it so as to join David to himself. And that's the reason he can prophesy. And that's the reason he can say the blood of bulls and goats is not what pleases you, Lord. It is what comes from the heart. A truly perfect, pure heart. A newly eschatological heart. That's what I want. And God says to David, I'll give it to you. It's a gift. Grace for you. Now we come to verse 10. And we've already noted the fact that verse 10 14 and 29 have a paradigm of the word sanctified in verse 10 we have been sanctified in verse 14 we have been perfected those who are sanctified In verse 29, Christ is sanctified. Let's begin with verse 29. Notice the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, he being the Son of God, who is the antecedent of that pronoun in that verse, Son of God, was sanctified. Does not our confession tell us that Christ is the sinless Savior? There was no sin found in him. Didn't even this epistle say that he was without sin? Then how is our writer saying that he is sanctified. The way I read that verse is that he's speaking of the one who has stumbled under the foot of the blood of the Son of God. Because in some sense, he was sanctified by that. Mm -hmm. Impossible. What do you think that he would deserve? He deserves not sanctification. No, but I mean in the same sense that the child of 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 a believing parent is is, uh, said to be holy, sanctified, uh, when in fact it may not be absolutely. Mm. But the antecedent of the pronoun, the closest person is not the one who tramples underfoot the Son of God, the closest pronoun refers to the closest person is the Son of God you're saying that, that who referred to the Son of God? Uh, I don't have a who in the New American Standard. Would you read what you're... Yeah, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has... Oh, I'm sorry, yes, who has trampled underfoot no, the Son no, of God. No, yeah. Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated an unholy thing, as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant, the it? Yeah, well, uh, once again, the NIV is, uh, in my opinion, uh, slanting a, a, trans- a commentary on the significance of the pronoun. Would, uh, could you read the NASB? Yeah, the NASB says, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Pete? Isn't there a passage in Hebrews that says he was made perfect through suffering? Yes. Isn't that related to this in some way? Yes. All right, let's deal with the fact that Christ is said to be sanctified. In other words, I'm referring the blood of the covenant to the blood of Christ's covenant by which he, namely Christ, Son of God, was sanctified. Yes. Yes. Is it fair to say this is a result of his completed work so that his sanctification takes place at his resurrection? Okay, Okay. Professor Sanborn is suggesting that the sanctification occurs at the resurrection, and does that mean that he was unsanctified? He was declared to be so for us. I, I, I want to avoid that word declared. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Shoot it with okay. All right. Uh, sanctified at his resurrection. Does that imply that he was unsanctified? No. No. Yes. Yes? Where? Well, uh, he took the sins of mankind upon him. What do you mean? The cross. At the cross. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. Chapter 12 of this letter, he endures the contradiction of sinners. What's going on here? then how could he be perfected in sanctification we've already got the resurrection that's his sanctification how can he be perfected in sanctification how can he he be be definitively sanctified What's the next state? Glorification. Glorification. All right. Now let's think about this. Oh, well, let's forget that. Um on the cross, Jesus is regarded as unholy. It must be so. He is unholy because he's bearing sin and is regarded at that point as a sinful. Sin bearer. The resurrection is a declaration that he is no longer regarded as sinful. Otherwise, he would still be held by the grave. So, the resurrection is a revelation of his full and perfect sanctification. and yet that sanctification by resurrection is not consummated it is not consummated until he is glorified his definitive sanctification is sanctification by way of glorification is the final stage In his sanctification. Well, this is a process. And it involves a progress. In fact, it involves a pilgrim's progress. And we've been talking in this epistle about how Christ is regarded by our writer as the eschatological pilgrim. And so here is this eschatological pilgrim's progress in sanctification. Unholy in God's sight. So that God can't even look at him at the moment of his death. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The cry of dereliction is a cry of reversal. Jesus has been looked at by his father as a sinner, as an unholy sinner, as a sinful sinner. And he bears the wages of sin, which is death. But at his resurrection, he is vindicated or revealed to be without sin, holy and sinless, undefiled. And on entering into glory, he is there. To bear sin no more. He is definitively sinless. Definitively holy. So when our author here in verse 10 says that we have been sanctified. And uses the language of definitive sanctification. We have been once and for all. We have been sanctified. And in verse 14 even talks about perfecting us for all time who have been sanctified. He is talking about our participation in this redemptive historical process. We are united to Christ in his death on the cross and therefore are united to his unsanctified state as he is identified with our unsanctified state. We are united to him in his resurrection from the dead and therefore we are united to his sanctified state even as he is united to our sanctified state. And we are united to Christ in his glorification because we have been seated at the right hand of glory in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we are definitively sanctified in his definitive sanctification and glorification, even as he is glorified definitively in us. Definitive sanctification is a redemptive historical paradigm. It is not an ontological paradigm. Definitive sanctification has to do with what happens in history to the one who comes into history. It has nothing to do with the ontology of that one. The fact that he is sinless as he comes into history and he is sinless in history until he comes to the cross when he undergoes the contradiction of sinners and is reversed. Not in his moral nature, but in what he bears. The category then of definitive sanctification is an appropriate category for explaining this process and progress redemptive historically. It is not an explanation for some ontology of moral perfection in us as if we become perfect in the process. No, no Wesleyan perfectionism, no Nazarene perfectionism. No time when we say, when we don't have to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I acknowledge that Christian perfectionism has disappeared under the, under the uh, horror of the sinfulness of man in the late 20th century. You don't even have the Nazarenes talking about it much anymore, let alone the Methodists, and yet they've got it in their doctrine. John Wesley believed That you could be perfect in this life and never sin anymore after a certain point in your Christian maturity. If people believe that anymore, they whisper it in dark corners. But this category of what has come to be known as definitive sanctification is a legitimate category of consideration because of this language in this epistle and in this 10th chapter. It is somewhat interesting. In fact, it is baffling to me that John Murray, in his famous articles on this point, never cites this language in the epistle to the Hebrews. I am baffled by it. But Murray's position is sound in this sense. He has understood a profounder aspect of the doctrine of sanctification than the usual uh, uh, catechetical description of progress in holiness. He's not repudiating that, neither am I. But we're talking about something that has happened to our Savior. He is definitively sanctified. And our writer is saying that we are possessors of that because we have been sanctified in him. It doesn't mean that we're over sinning or done with uh, no longer being unholy. We are in a process and on a progress ourselves. But this now not yet sanctification is as real As the now not yet eschatological benefits of Christ's full work, including His perfect sanctification. It's in Him. It is not in you. You see, it is in Him. That's where it's definitive. And you hold on to Him for your definitive sanctification. Murray is defensible. He's anchoring his essays in the Pauline Doctrine. That is true. Here we are forced because of verse 29 to see it more, shall we say, properly Christologically. And I don't mean to detract from the centrality of Christ in Murray's own work on the topic. 20 years ago, I would not be saying what I'm saying tonight. Because 20 years ago, I didn't understand what John Murray was driving at. Because I didn't understand what John Murray was telling me Paul was driving at. But I am persuaded, even as this epistle forces me to be persuaded. that what Murray observed is correct. Not infallible, but Correct. But this is an aspect of Reformed theology that needs to be penetrated and deeply thought about. But the key is not to blur the distinction between ontology and redemptive history. That's the key. If you stand on the redemptive historical side of this discussion... You will keep yourself out of heresy. On the other hand, let us hear no charges of heresy against Professor Murray for pre- for presenting this idea. None. Please. You're going to have to argue with an inspired writer. Hebrews chapter 10. All right, now, this Prods us a little bit because this definitive sanctification can be construed as a punctiliar act. It is not. It is a progressive work. It is an ongoing process in the life of those who are united to the Holy Lord Jesus' own progression, because He underwent this. Progression in sanctification, so too I, living and dwelling in him, united unto him by grace through faith, am in the process of this progression. This is a redemptive historical drama. And you are being drawn into it through the work of your Savior. Any questions or comments that you have? Yes, Scott. Be an already and not yet. Reality? Yes, it is an already and not yet. It is a now not yet. Yes. Once I once I have made this case, if this case be sound, okay. Understand, I'm making a suggestion here. I'm not infallible, okay. But I am impressed by this language, and I think I'm compelled to this kind of a paradigm, particularly because of verse 29. But this. This is a redemptive historical paradigm. Okay, It's talking about what happens in history. And when I do that, talking about Christ, I'm in an already not yet paradigm. I'm always in a now not yet paradigm. I'm always there, even with a matter of sanctification. We are saints. We are saints. In Christ. In Christ. By faith. By faith. And we are perfected definitively. By faith in him. Though, so, we keep progressing actually. Alright, now this may challenge your thinking a little bit, okay? It's not the way the usual catechisms are written. I'm not criticizing the way they're written. I'm just simply saying there's something more here. There's something more here. That's what Murray was on to. There's something more here. Or do you think that everything's been said that needs to be said about the Word of God? Well, then what are you going to do for eternity? Just go over and over and over what you already know? Oh, i got news for you. You're going to be learning forever. You think those Italians are amazed about the fact that those neutrinos are faster than the speed of light? You heard about that experiment? The neutrino arises before the light is even let out of the bucket and they check their data and they send it to what I think is 160 scientists around the world and they can't figure out what's wrong. And yet here is a form of matter that destroys Einstein's theory of relativity. Do you realize what's up here? If this is vindicated, do you realize what's up? The whole cosmology of E equals MC squared is turned on its head. Something out there that God made is faster than light. Whoa. Whoa. We're talking about another dimension here. We're on the border of something that is transitional between infinite light and infinite darkness. Anyway, fascinating fascinating experiment and even if it turns out not to be true even if it turns out that somehow they that, you know the, the accelerator made a mistake or you know whatever they got with the trigger you know wasn't actually set right or something even isn't this fun to think about it you see, think about something faster than the speed of light this is God, is, is this is God Himself, greater than the speed of light. <laughs> he's he's faster than neutrinos. <laughs> All right. Well, any any other questions about that uh, uh, comment about definitive sanctification? All right. Well, on your outline, then we've arrived at uh, verses eleven and twelve, and this comparative paradigm. Yes. Go ahead, Scott. In your mind, is there a connection between this definitive sanctification and the language of perfection that you already discussed before? Yes, I do. Yes,
1: I do. In other words, we are
0: definitively perfected in that sense of him being definitively perfected and perfectly sanctified. This is all Christologically or Christocentrically related. That's the reason to keep Christ at the center of this. This is not because I'm you know, screwing up my moral godliness or anything like that. This is another reason why you know, these little uh, 10 steps to increase godliness and so on and so forth, where all the focus is upon what you're doing, the counsel of despair. Counsel of despair. You've got to keep your eyes fixed steadfastly on Jesus. That's what he's going to say here in chapter 12. We'll get to that. <laughs> okay. Now notice, in 11 and 12, he's got this comparative paradigm, where he begins in verse 11, with the Old Testament sacrifice. Notice the language. The priest stands daily, offering time after time that which can never take away sin, now notice in verse 12 what he did, what he does. He places right alongside that comparison, the contrast of what Christ has done. But he, namely Christ, having once offered for sins, for all time, not daily, sat down, not standing, once he offered, not time after time, so that he could perfect the removal of sin. What a blessed liberation this is and what a glorious accomplishment is testified to the fact that he sat down. It's done. It's finished. It's completed. What I have done is for all time. What I have done... Once and for all, completes it. Not time after time, over and over again, year after year, day in and day out. Blah 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 blah. No, Christ has finished it. And so we hold on to the Savior who has finished it on our behalf. Trust Him. Lean on Him. Confide in Him. Depend on Him. Live in union with you. So verse 13, all that remains. What's all that remains? Judgment on his enemies. Same thing as at the end of chapter 9. He's only going to appear for a second time for salvation. But, verse 27, judgment upon others. Now we have verses 15 to 18, which are a restatement of Jeremiah 31 that was central to chapter 8 and the contrast between the Old and New Covenant. Why is this section of Jeremiah repeated again? This is a challenge that uh, commentators do not address adequately. Uh, Some of them have even regarded it as an afterthought and out of place. I did not specify when we talked about the structure of this chapter, what I think is going on in verses 15 to 18. You may have noticed I skipped over it, the exception of mentioning one word in verse 18. I did that because I wanted to, so to speak, save my ammunition for this point. The re-quotation from Jeremiah 31 is the hinge to this chapter even as it is the hinge to the relationship between chapter 7 and 8 and chapter 9 and 10. It occurs in chapter 8 because it's kind of the glue that holds those two sections together. The appearance of Christ in the heavenly tabernacle related to the ritual of the earthly tabernacle and the sacrifice That he offers in that arena compared with the sacrifice that was offered in the arena of the earthly tabernacle. Notice in this tenth chapter, we've just gone through a discussion of what was going on in the sacrifice at the tabernacle, namely the uh, offering up of the blood of bulls and goats. But in verse 19, notice what we are going to move towards. We have confidence to enter the holy place. What holy place? This is the heavenly tabernacle. So once again, our writer is shifting between what occurred in the tabernacle of the former era and the sacrifices of that arena and what has occurred in that heavenly tabernacle. Only here he is referring to the fact that we have entered into it. And how is that possible? I will put my laws upon their hearts. And upon their mind, I will write them. I will make a new covenant with them. And I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. The Jeremiah 31 passage once again serves as the hinge or the pivot point in this relationship between the former and the latter era, between the old age and the new age, which is dawned in Christ between that poorer era and the era of better things to come. He goes back to it then to reinforce it. Because remember, he has people in this community to which he is writing who are hankering and longing for this tangible, external form of worship. They want the priest They want sacrifice. They want a visible tabernacle or temple-like dwelling. They seem to be inclined back to the ritualism of the old era, to the externalism of that old era. And once again, he wants to put the pivot point on the focus of what happens inside. In the heart. Not outside. And so, what is facetiously and viciously sometimes called the simplicity of Puritan plain style worship is exactly what the spirit of the Epistle of the Hebrews is talking about. Not a return to fancy liturgies, pomp and circumstance, expensive buildings lots of ornate uh, investment in brick mortar and stone you hear about them building buying up these abandoned shopping malls one of them putting 18 million dollars into putting a church inside a shopping mall 18 million dollars this is madness this isn't piety It is out of the heart. Give me your heart, says the Lord. Let your worship style reflect your heart. You bring your heart before the throne of God. You don't bring your statues. You don't bring your garb. You don't bring your altar. You don't bring your stained glass windows. Give me a pipe organ. But you understand the point. point here is that this era, which is the transition between the old and the new, is the era of internally worshipping in spirit and in truth from the heart. From the heart. So let's have buildings true, but only what is necessary. Only what is necessary. And let's have liturgy, yes, but only what is simple and plain. And let's have preaching in which the preacher disappears. Because it's not about personality. It's about Christ and Christ in the heart. I saw a hand up or there was a question. Yes, all right. I understand what you're saying. So you're, you're making a connection between the externality of the $18 million church and things like that and the external um, the external things of the sacrifices and the priest and the robes and all the fancy it stuff. It is formally similar. For, I'm not saying that they are intentionally doing it, but it is formally similar. Just as the Roman Catholic liturgy is formally similar to Old Testament ritual. Now that we have left those externalities of the Old Testament, it follows logically that we should not participate in new externalities. So is that the point? That exactly. Can
1: you imagine how many small
0: neighborhood churches you could build with $18 million? You want a shovel-ready stimulus program? I've got you know $18 million. There's a lot of places to hire and employ pastors and preach the gospel from one part of the city to another. Let alone throughout the world. There was another hand up. I saw that story. And I was outraged. I was absolutely outraged. All right. Now, um, that leaves us at the brink then of the next section. And I think I will leave you at the brink of uh, going home and we'll come back next week to uh, pick up the next section because I certainly can't finish it in the next three minutes. Any final questions or comments? Scott? Would you comment on the relationship, uh, verses 17 and 18, the relationship to what's going on? Well, he's confirming what is the fruit of the new heart, namely <clears throat> having changed the heart. Now he's not going to remember the sins of that new heart, so therefore, there's no longer any offering for sin that we've been talking about in verses 1 through 14. So once again, he's going back to this pattern, this externalism is now passé. It's been surpassed, including external sacrifices, bulls and goats' blood, etc., etc., etc. Continually, year after year, day after day, uh, offering and can't remove the, the consciousness of sin. But this has been completed. Now, what's going to flow out of that? Verses 19 through following, that's what's going to flow out of it. He's going to talk about this access that we have. as Verse 19, we have confidence to enter. We have access to enter in to that uh, heavenly, holy tabernacle in Christ. I think there's any connection here between God remembering Israel's sin and, and judging them in exile, and now he will even remember our sins no more? And that's also reflected in, the, in the no longer repetition of sacrifice. Now that the final sacrifice has been made, there is no longer a remembrance in terms of the sacrificial system and in terms of that. Yeah, I think Jeremiah is looking to the horizon of his own context. And so uh, I think it's proper to see the exile as... As uh, a return from exile, as a kind of inaugural or provisional fulfillment of, he's not going to remember the sin of what cast them out of the land. But of course, in bringing them back to the land, they simply return to their own vomit once again, as Jeremiah is passing like a dog returning to its vomit. And and uh, I, I I don't think they come back with a new heart per se. of that reality... Yes. ...on the side by Jeremiah. Yes. Yes. Not so much the return from exile, but the New Testament era. Right. Though it anticipates it, but it anticipates it in, in terms of failure. It can't perfect it either. Yeah, New Testament era has a relative contrast to the exile. Right. Bonsoir.